Hello, and welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, part of the Awareness to Action podcast network. This is the podcast that looks at one film in each episode and uses it to explain the nine types and three instinctual biases of the Enneagram model of personality. One movie, one type. My name is Mario Sakura, and I'll be joined by Maria Jose Munita and Tamara Zanatti. We are the principals of Awareness to Action International, a global consulting and training company that specializes in practical applications of the Enneagram. You can find out more about us and our work at awarenesstoaction.com. In the meantime, make some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. Uh, I'm Mario Sikor, and I'm here with Maria Jose Munita. Hi, Mario. Hi, Tamar. And with Tamar Zanatti. Hello, Mario Jose. Hello, Mario. Hello, everyone. All right. So we are going to be talking about the movie Lost in Translation today, starring Bill Murray, Scarlett Johansson from 2003, uh, and Enneagram Type 4. This is a really, really, really fourish movie. Okay. Um, and uh, oddly enough, as I was watching this, I, all I could think about was how four it was, but also how navigating it was. And we considered this as a movie to talk about for the navigating domain, but ended up going with The Breakfast Club. So I am curious, as we start, I want to know Tamar's impression of this movie me too <laughs> why especially me <laughs> well you know we'll see i'm just curious be, what, what, being our group transmitter i'm curious yeah. actually i i like the movie and uh, because we use it in our programs i watched it many times and i enjoyed watching it again yeah i think i think it's different it's it's not like uh, the kind of move the commercial movie that you see every day it's different it's not that fast pace. I understand what you're, uh, <laughs> you're but 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 at the same thing, I get uh, concentrating on the depth that it has. You know, this uh, subtle messages uh, in everything, and I like the performance of both of them, uh, yeah. Bill Murray and uh, Scarlett Johansson. I mean, and the directing is is amazing. Yes. The picture is artistic, so artistic. It reflects. Uh, for uh, a director. So, no, I, I like it. I mean, it's not a boring good. movie for me. <laughs> good, 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 good. All right. So, uh, Maria Jose, quick quick reaction to the movie, and then I'll tell the uh, audience what uh, this movie's about before we go and talk about Type 4. Yeah, I was wondering about your reaction, Tamar, as well. I really, really enjoyed it. It's, again, we use it a lot, but I had not watched, again, the whole movie in a long time, and I didn't want it to end. You know, it's, I think it's the forish kind of theme, but also the navigating aspect of it. It's like I was all the time guessing what they were feeling and trying to come up with a story of what was going on, what they were thinking, what they were feeling. And I enjoyed that. That's almost what I do for a living. It was fascinating. 
Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll just uh, chip in here and say I just love this movie. I, this is one of my favorite movies. And it's a movie that uh, I have met some people who saw it and didn't like it. I, I don't enjoy spending time with those people. But, it, you know, it, it reminds me of a very European movie, right? It's, it reminds me very much of a French film or a, a Swedish film from the, you know, 60s or 70s. It's uh, You can't really describe the plot. And there's not a huge amount of action uh, that occurs, but it's a very moving and absorbing movie as far as I'm concerned. So, Lost in Translation, what is it about? Okay, so um, Bill Murray plays Bob Harris, who is a middle-aged actor who's kind of on the tail end of his career, but still a very famous guy, who is in Tokyo to film a commercial for a Japanese whiskey, for which he is paying, being paid $2 million. Uh, we know this because he mentions it a couple of times, because he has this sort of shame that he is there making all this money to do a commercial when he could be doing a play somewhere, as he puts it, right? So yeah, it, it's like ahead. it's below his worth. You know, exactly. like it's just he shouldn't be doing that. It's, exactly. There's yeah. there's no yeah, and there's I sensed, no dignity. I, I sensed in, in his comment on that it's like the lack of meaning in this yes. in this commercial. It's like I mean it doesn't have the depth that I deserve. Yes, yes. Now, I have to say, if somebody was going to hand me two million bucks to do a, a, a commercial about whiskey, I, I, you know, I, I can't imagine being depressed by that in any way whatsoever, right? But, uh, you know, again, that kind of helps to define the character. So uh, while he's there, he's feeling very disoriented. There's clearly some trouble at home with his wife. He runs into or encounters a, a young woman uh, named Charlotte, played by Scarlett Johansson. They develop this relationship through the course of the movie that's kind of hard to define, right? I mean, she is a playing a 25-year-old woman. I think she was only 17 or 18 at the time, which was kind of shocking when I, I found that out. Uh, and he is someone who's clearly in his, I'd say, mid to late 50s uh, during the uh, this part of the movie. So they develop this relationship. They are both dealing with jet lag, with a sense of disorientation, of being in a very foreign place. Uh, she is there with with her husband, who is a photographer. So uh, Charlotte and Bob end up kind of forming this relationship that has its ups and downs, and then they leave and go their own separate ways, and that's the end of the movie. Okay. Uh, now, again, doesn't seem like much of a plot, but there's a whole lot going on here. Anything you guys would add about the plot? I think it's a lot about Japan and the culture there and how they react yeah, to it. It's mm -hmm. hard to blend in. <laughs> Just everything yes. is so different. Yes. And, and that yes. has a big role, I think, in the whole movie. Yes. Now, uh, Mariozzi, I know you have not been to Japan. How about you, Tamara? Have you been to Japan? No, I've never been to Japan. Okay. <laughs> I, I, spent, I, I spent 36 hours there once, okay? So I'm, I'm not well-versed on Japan by any but means. Whole, the whole world knows about it. <laughs> well, they do, they do now. Right? So, uh, <laughs> so uh, and uh, I, you know, I've been to the bar where this, you know, a lot of this movie takes place. A lot of it takes place at the Park Hyatt Hotel in Tokyo. And uh, I did not stay at the hotel, but I did spend time at the bar. And only because I had seen this movie and loved the movie so much that I go to the bar. Japan is a, for 
a Westerner, a very, very different place. It's very disorienting. You know, when you're there, you think, or I felt that I could be there for a hundred years and I would never understand this place, right? Because it's just so different from anywhere else I'd ever been before. So, um, which again, adds that feeling of disorientation, which is so at the heart of the type four. Before we talk more about the movie, why don't we talk about the Enneagram Type 4? So, uh, Maria Jose, tell us about the traditional Enneagram and Type 4. So, fours are well known for their passion, and uh, which is envy. Envy, the definition is an emotion which occurs when a person lacks another's superior quality, achievement, or possession, and either desires it or wishes that the other lacked it. With a four, it's, they're constantly comparing themselves to the other person and to other people, I mean, to other people in general, and in an effort or a desire to feel unique, to feel different. So they compare themselves and they see how other people have these attributes that they don't possess and they feel envy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, tell us about the fixation. Yeah, so the fixation and it's these kind of thinking patterns, uh, melancholy, and it's uh, a feeling of pensive sadness, typically with no obvious cause. And you can see that in fours. It's, there's just these subtle and not so subtle sometimes sadness that seems like they enjoy. It's not like yeah. they were sad and trying not to feel sad. It's kind of part of themselves. I think it's almost like part of their identity sometimes. It's they just are like that, like deep. You can see that melancholy. Yeah. Yeah. I was surprised when we get to the reviews of this movie how many of them use the word melancholy. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, because this movie just does exude this melancholy, this, mm. this and, and I, I love the phrase, the, the term pensive sadness here. Right. So it's kind of a meditative thinking mm. about sadness right? Yeah. Uh, that, that, that kind of comes through. And the, the virtue is equanimity. Tell us about equanimity, Maria. Zane. So equanimity is a state of psychological stability and composure which is um, undisturbed by experience or of exposure to emotions, pain, or other phenomena that may cause others to lose the balance of their mind. So that's the description or definition, really. And so fours have this ability to just embrace everything and everyone and with their emotions, whatever those are, uh, with what they're doing. And that's a really, really good quality that force can have or can display. Yeah. And I think we see equanimity a lot in this movie as well, particularly in the, the Bill Murray um, character of at least struggling to find those moments of equanimity and moments of real misery and sadness and suffering, but also these moments of kind of balance and poise and perspective that uh, I think the four gains as they mature. Yeah. So uh, all of that on display. Yeah, I saw that as a sign of maturity. So yes. after having been 
through so much probably in life. He was trying. It was. It didn't come that natural. He was <laughs> kind of struggling with himself and his reactions, but then trying to display this equanimity. Yeah, yeah, and and I think this this says so much about how the the path on growing within our enneagram style, or you know, managing our enneagram style, is not moving from one state to another permanently. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, we kind of we're we're, we're visiting along the way, you know, and uh, so you can see him going in and out of that state of equanimity. So when we talk about the uh, the Enneagram types, we talk about preferred strategies, right? And uh, we call the four striving to feel unique. And we talk about how the, uh, the strategy starts from a place of wanting to feel a certain way, which shapes the way we think, which shapes the, the actions that we take as we go through life. Uh, Tamar, tell us about the preferred strategy of striving to feel unique for fours. Yeah, it's uh, it's this is the the, uh, the 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 need to feel is need to feel unique that affect the way the owner of such a preferred strategy think thinking uh, how to express my uniqueness. How to express to the world, how to how to express to myself even how unique I am, which which affect the actions. And this is where you can see this comparison, how different I am from others or how, how do I don't belong to this group and maybe belong to this group. This comparison most of the time, how how can I make things different, situation difference, products difference, uh, the way I'm speaking, impacting others, just my own unique way. And when, is, when this is expressed in an adaptive way, it can be very creative, okay? very uh, giving a fresh perspective of things, okay? finding uh, the beauty in, in different things, even the beauty in the middle of the things that we don't really notice and the quality of other people's. But when it's overdone, it can be a kind of rebellious with no need or it can be of, uh, uh, you know, manufacturing uniqueness, yes. manufacturing difference, uh, uh, changing things for the sake of uh, changing them without really the right. need of that and and right. maybe losing the perspective that uniqueness is like a, a, an innate thing rather than something to be manufactured yeah so the, and and again we see a lot of this particularly in charlotte right so the the quest for the four is the big question of who am i who am i really and uh how do i express that person that i am so that we we also like to talk about the connecting points and so uh, we talk about the uh connection between uh point four and point one striving to feel perfect and how that is what we call a neglected strategy and it doesn't mean that fours don't have a perfectionistic streak because they often do um, but it also means that they don't want to follow the rules. They don't want to fit in. They don't want to uh, have the same expectations set on them uh, that they might put on other people. And the other connecting point is striving to feel connected, which is uh, you know what we call the support strategy. And again, there's a whole lot of this going on, right? So, Tamar, tell us about striving to feel connected and point four. So it's it's their support strategy. Sometimes it it uh, it helps them into connecting to others, understanding, uh, feeling their emotions, and uh, and so on. And sometimes it gets into uh, feeling, you know, this demandingness. I mean, demanding the others to 
really respond back to uh, their needs or their their uh, expressing that they are connected to and feeling their uniqueness and so on. Sometimes it's overdone. So th- this idea of finding my identity through somebody else is really important for Ford, right? So they're torn between who am I independent of others, but also what do my connections to other people say about me and who I am? Okay, so uh, very often there's this sort of comparing of themselves to other people and then a desire, this longing for people that they think are special in some way. Okay, and uh, again, a theme that comes out through the movie over and over again. Okay, so fours are, again, uh, you know, often thought of as these, you know, the stereotype of the four is that they're kind of odd, they don't quite fit in, they dress different, all this sort of thing. And certainly sometimes we see that, but, you know, the vast majority of fours are very normal people for the most part, right? You know, you wouldn't be able to pick them out of a crowd just because they're fours necessarily, but certainly these two characters are very normal, likable, and, you know, admirable people. They just have this thing about melancholy and this thing about their identity that they're struggling to find. Okay, so, sorry, anything else we should say about fours before we move on? I think that the the point you just made, I really want to reinforce it because sometimes they have a lot of bad press. And, yeah. uh, like, if they were not capable of holding leadership positions or yes. stay at a job, a normal job, or that's not my experience. Although they want to kind of feel different or unique, they can be in pretty much any job, any position yeah. in a, and succeed at it. Agreed. Agreed. I, I remember one time talking with somebody on some Enneagram forum uh, about a CEO that I was suggesting might be a four and somebody said, well, no, a four can't be a CEO, right? Of course they can. That's just ridiculous, right? They, I've met fours who are attorneys, who are accountants, who are, you know, real estate salespeople, you know, do every other job, just like every other Enneagram type. Uh, They're not all, like I like to say, beret wearing, clove cigarettes smoking, you know, beep poets or something. Awareness to Action offers a unique approach to applying the Enneagram professionally with leaders and organizations, as well as for personal development. What makes us stand apart is our Enneagram expertise and focus on understanding human nature. We know people because we see people. And this is a skill set that can be taught and learned. Human nature is complex and simple at the same time. Our mission is to help people see clearly and act accordingly. Why? Because the ability to see ourselves and others clearly and honestly is essential. It enables us to act in more adaptive and useful ways. The multicultural team and awareness to action will help you learn tools and practices to become more aware and also to understand and engage people more effectively. Learn more at awarenesstoaction.com Join us at 2021 for exciting learning opportunities. All right. So the movie filled with fours. I don't know about Scarlett Johansson. I don't know enough about her uh, to know anything about what her Enneagram type is. But I do believe that Bill Murray 
in real life is a navigating for like the character he plays in the movie there's some interesting things to talk about regarding bill murray in a moment uh sophia coppola also strikes me as very much a four she is the uh, daughter of francis ford coppola our friend from the godfather when she wrote this movie it was based on her own experiences of being in japan she was uh, doing a press conference for press promotion for her earlier movie, The Virgin Suicides, which is another very good movie. And, you know, this feeling of disorientation and her love of Japan uh, inspired her to do this movie. She had Bill Murray in mind when she wrote it, uh, only found uh, Scarlett Johansson a bit later. Go ahead, Mariosa. No, I I have no idea what Scarlett Johansson's personality type, but I saw one uh, press conference where he's kind of whole... The, the the other guy who was starring at that movie got asked something and she got asked if she was wearing underwear uh, with, I think it was the Avengers or something like that. Uh-huh. And she said, why do all of them get the interesting questions? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I get the question about my underwear, you know, so she, now it, I would have been irritated by that, by that as well, yeah. but it just, this forish angle reminded me yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah, the expression is very forish. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, certainly could be. So a, a couple of things about the movies, uh, uh, other things. So Scarlett Johansson's character, Charlotte, her husband in the movie, uh, played by John, or named John, played by Giovanni Ribisi, is actually modeled on Sofia Coppola's ex-husband, video and movie director Spike Jones, And the character, what the heck was her name? Kelly, I think, the actress, Kelly, the yes. blonde actress, uh, played by Anna Faris, is modeled on Cameron Diaz. It's pretty clear that Sofia Coppola is not a big Cameron Diaz fan, you know, so we'll, we'll come back to that. Pretty clear that she's still not married. I mean, not still married because it's... <laughs> <laughs> Right. right. Yes, that marriage did not last. And we, we can certainly understand why when, when watching the movie. Right. Some interesting tidbits about Bill Murray with the, uh, the movie. Bill Murray does not have a Hollywood agent. Right. So he apparently he has an 800 number, right, a, a, uh, a toll free number that people have to call and leave messages on if they even know his number, right? He doesn't share it with everybody. And he lives very far from Hollywood. He lives in, I think, South Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina, which is a beautiful city, but again, just kind of a unusual place for a Hollywood actor of his stature to live. And he is known for just kind of showing up at events, right? Uh, kind of crashing weddings and just hanging out or, you know, going to bars and just liking to hang out with people and talk and entertain them. Uh, again, a quirky sort of guy. And he agreed to do this movie after she chased him down for a year, leaving him messages, finding every friend that she knew him uh, to, to, you know, and to ask him to do it. And he did not sign a contract. And they had started filming the movie and had already spent a quarter of the budget before he even showed up by surprise in Japan uh, to start filming the movie, right? So a little bit of a quirky guy. And again, it seems odd to say that somebody who's known as a comedic actor 
would be a four because of course we'd expect, oh, it must be a seven. He's a comedian, all this sort of stuff. But again, it goes against the stereotype. And I think anybody who has tracked Bill Murray over the course of his life uh, can see the fourness in him. I don't know. What do you guys, uh, do you have uh, enough familiarity with him outside of the film roles to, to comment on that? Yeah, I guess even in Ghostbuster, you can, you can see the, the, his, I mean, if you look at his eyes, he's still, I mean, he's, he's producing comedy. But still this, uh, you know, uh, sadness, melancholy, yeah. deep uh, look is on his eyes most of the time. So it's like, yeah, it's obvious. Yeah. Yeah, so a quick tidbit, you know, movie history tidbit regarding Ghostbusters. So Ghostbusters was a huge, huge hit. And uh, the movie studio wanted him to do Ghostbusters 2, which he did not want to do. And he had this dream of making a movie out of the book, The Razor's Edge in uh, the early 1980s. And uh, it was a book that nobody wanted to turn into a movie. It had been turned into a movie in the 1940s with Tyrone Power. But he said to the production company, if you fund me to make The Razor's Edge, then I will do Ghostbusters 2. And The Razor's Edge is about uh, a guy after World War II who's on a search to find himself. Uh, tracing, you know, uh, traveling the world and seeking wisdom as he finds himself. So again, Kind of a four-ish move in my book, right? The movie, by the way, if you can find it, The Razor's Edge, it's an interesting curiosity. The book is much, much better. I'm a big fan of the book. The movie only cost $4 million to make, and it ended up returning a worldwide gross of $117 million, I believe. So it was, a, uh, it was a small movie, but it was a very profitable movie. The people who uh, made it were happy in that regard. Uh, culturally, it made Scarlett Johansson, right? I mean, uh, it really put her on the map, and she went on to do many things, including being Black Widow in the Marvel's movies, which I think is her most, her biggest claim to fame unfortunately and it showed people that bill murray could act what did you guys think of bill murray's performance in this movie Amazing. i like it i like it very much i mean he's like he's saying a lot with his uh, facial expressions that are very subtle with his uh, body language more than what he says with his uh, i mean with his uh, words maria jose he was really likable i agree with tamar and also i think that he managed to perform in a way that showed kind of a sweet angle, but also intensely romantic. So it was, and that's, I don't think it's an easy job. Yes, yes. It was a very textured and nuanced performance. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was the best of his career. He was also great in Rushmore, a very, very different character. But uh, I think that's his other top thing. And of course, he had a cameo role in Zombieland to tie us back to our last episode when we talked to Tom Condon about zombie movies. Uh, Zombieland with Woody Harrelson and, uh, oh, the guy that played uh, Mark Zuckerberg in, in the, so the Social Network. Our <laughs> guys... <laughs> Uh, running from zombies, and they end up at Bill Murray's house. And uh, But Bill Murray is not yet a zombie, and they end up hanging out with him. But then Bill Murray, playing himself in the movie, uh, decides to dress up like a zombie and scare the other people. And, of course, they blow his head off. And there's the famous line from the movie is, man, you killed Bill Murray. So um, anyway, just a little tie back to our previous episode through the through our love of zombies. Oh, right. you, you, you love zombies. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you missed our conversation with Tom about that I last did. time. I, I, did. Did. Yeah, so. I think we should do like an extra 
uh, episode of the, <laughs> of the <laughs> this podcast. With the Enneagram in a movie, zombie edition. Right? Zombiegram. Yeah. We yeah, have okay. the zombiegram uh, episodes. <laughs> all right. Okay, great. Let's see, one final comment about the movie. It never really had a traditional script. Um, there were the uh, When she wrote what you know, served as the script. It was really just a series of sketches. And a lot of the movie was ad-libbed, particularly the Bill Murray parts, which you can certainly see in places where uh, the people around him are doing anything they can to not laugh, right? Like at the, the hospital, there are the two women in the back laughing and on the elevator, um, people are trying not to laugh. And uh, the uh, the scene in the sushi restaurant with the black toe, um, you know, he was clearly <laughs> ad-libbing there. And uh, also, a lot of the movie was shot kind of guerrilla style, meaning that they would just say, hey, this is a cool place, let's shoot here. And, you know, they didn't have permits or anything like that. They would just grab the cameras. So a lot of the scenes when they're running for taxis and that sort of thing, they were doing kind of on the fly and improvising. So I think I'd, I heard that that last scene when he talks to her and we just can't see, hear what he's saying. It was improvised as well. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. And no. it's, uh, you know, and, and it just goes to show you how, how a good improvisation can really uh, have an impact because that, I think, is, is an incredibly powerful ending uh, to the movie. So, yeah. Only good. a four uh, director would do that. I mean, all of these improvisations. <laughs> yes. <laughs> unscripted uh, shooting. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It was just kind of, well, let's see what happens here. And uh, off we go. Okay, so we're going to continue talking about the key scenes in the movie. And I think what I'd like to do, there are a few scenes uh, that we pulled out to discuss. And I think also, kind of like we did before, part of it is about relationships. So uh, we did with Jerry Maguire. But I think the first, again, you know, as we've experienced with some of the other movies, it's kind of hard to stop you know, some of these scenes and say, okay, well, this scene captured four and then it stops talking about four because just so much of the movie it was was uh, illustrating fourness, right? But let's talk, you know, the first 20 minutes or so. So go, go ahead, Maria. Yeah, uh, it's when I looked at the scenes that we were supposed to kind of discuss here, I was like, oh, I don't want to stop there. I mean, there's so many <laughs> right. other things that are interesting right. and fourish. So, um, so yeah. it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. So so they're coming. He's coming from the airport. That's the first. No, she's in the hotel room yes. first. Yes. So a very, I, I guess, kind of a bit of a controversial opening yeah. scene with Scarlett Johansson, uh, a close up on her rear end laying in bed uh, wearing uh, pink underwear. And pink transparent underwear. Uh, pink transparent underwear. And, uh, you know, and I think that was, again, that was Sofia Coppola's idea to show the vulnerability the emotional vulnerability of the character. Uh, it certainly established that. And then they cut to Bill Murray coming in from the airport. Now, just a couple of uh, little nitpicks here. And Maria Jose, you're going to tear into me on this one. But uh, he's actually going the wrong direction 
uh, on that street, right? So the direction he is heading on that street is leading away from the hotel rather than toward it. But uh, and you know it because you've been there, right? <laughs> I I have walked down that street, so, uh -huh. uh, <laughs> so you needed to say it. I needed to say it, but there's you know I just had to yeah I just I'm showing off a little bit, man. Yeah. You know, so uh, but yes, yeah, so need there's to leverage that. those thirty six hours you spent in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> the best you can. Yeah. So, um, but again, you're getting this feeling of disorientation, you know, so he's clearly sleepy. He's clearly not sure where he is. There's all this neon lighting and uh, the driving on the, what, you know, we would say is the wrong side of the road. Um, and uh, so he gets to this hotel where he is kind of at the Park Hyatt, where he is just surrounded by people. Go ahead, Maria. Yeah, on his way to the to the hotel, you can see in his face that not only that he's tired, but kind of how foreign everything is to him. It's yeah. not just the language that he cannot read anything, but it's, it, 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 he looks like he just doesn't get it. And you can see that throughout the movie that he's looking at people and at places and it's like, how do I make sense of this? Yes, yes. And there's, there's, a, there's an evolution in him and his understanding of the place, right? Because later we'll see there's this scene where he's calling home to his wife after they're out with Charlie Brown and friends. And he's talking about all these cool things that he did and all these places that he saw. So he, it, it, you can tell the place grows on him. A big part of it is because he wants to stay longer to spend more time with Charlotte. Again, you, you know, I think there is a real kind of sense of, okay, I'm feeling okay now uh, as it goes on. Let's see. So also some of the things that are set up in the beginning, uh, you know, he is making a commercial for uh, Suntory Times Whiskey, which is a big whiskey producer in Japan. Oddly enough, when I was there, they did not have Suntory Whiskey on the menu at the bar where the movie is filmed. It was really quite disappointing and, you know, odd, I felt. But uh, what are you going to do? All right. So um, it also sets up that he's uh, his relationship with his wife is a little, shall we say, strained. I guess, because if you remember, he's in the lobby and they hand him an envelope with a fax in it. Can you imagine it was only 18 years ago that people were still sending faxes to each other? But uh, the fax says something along the lines of, well, you missed your son's birthday, but um, don't worry, I'm sure he'll be fine. Right, uh, kind of thing, you know, which is this little kind of stab in the heart from his wife. We'll see this, this theme of sort of a disconnect between him and his wife uh, throughout the movie. We also see Charlotte's uh, lack of identity uh, be on display in the opening scenes. Uh, what, what did you guys see regarding that? So there was this CD that, that she was listening to, and I don't know if it was in the first 20 minutes or not, but the kind of it was like the, a soul surge or something like that. And, yes. and she's kind of listening to it and looking at different things, going to, no, that's later in the, the flowers, but you can see that she's a bit lost, not yes. knowing what to do with herself. Yes, doesn't know what to do. She goes exploring, right, is walking through, you know, the crowded intersections, is uh, going through the Zen gardens, the Zen temple uh, that she ends up at, and as you say, sort of listening to the self-help uh, <laughs> CD to kind of figure out who she is. She calls her friend. Yeah. And, so, and, so yes, uh, she calls her friend, and the her problem, and she was 
crying. And she said, I went to this shrine and I didn't feel anything. Yes. And to her, yes. that was shocking or terrible. It was the worst thing that could have happened to her. Not yes. feel anything. And it was striking to me, too, that she was crying about not feeling anything, right? So it's like, well, clearly there's some emotion here, right? Uh, uh, if you didn't feel anything then, you're certainly feeling something now. And uh, what does her friend do? Do you remember? She, she was like distracted with another conversation <laughs> and that made her maybe even more yeah. feeling pain that she's not being attended to or she's not connecting emotionally with the other side. Yes, yes, yeah. The, the friend basically puts her on hold, right? And, uh, uh, you know, which is pretty much the last thing you want to do with a four when they're expressing uh, their emotions. Okay? So, uh, yeah, so clearly Charlotte is, uh, you know, and uh, both Charlotte and Bob are set up as people who are out of place, right? And not just physically out of place, but psychologically, emotionally out of place as well. Which interesting. Yeah, go ahead, Maria. There's another scene, I think it's there, where he takes a shower and the shower is just too low. <laughs> <laughs> so everything okay. is just out of place. You know, he's everywhere yes. out of place. Yes. Yes. And there's also the uh, jet lag issues that are going on and, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Okay. I think here's a good place I want to mention the concept of wabi-sabi. Okay, so um, wabi-sabi is a um, an aesthetic from Japanese art that, again, permeates this movie, right? And when we talk about fours, when we teach the four in our trainings, we often talk about this idea of wabi-sabi. In Japanese aesthetics, wabi-sabi is a worldview centered on the acceptance of the transient and imperfection in life okay so a lot of the japanese arts have this quality in it the ikebana the uh, flower arranging uh that maria jose mentioned um is certainly uh focused on this and there's an interesting comment i saw here that if an object or expression can bring about within us a sense of serene melancholy and a spiritual longing then that object can be said to have wabi-sabi and so again, we get this idea of melancholy, right? That just keeps coming back over and over again, right? So if you really want to understand fours, Google wabi-sabi, right? W-A-B-I-S-A-B-I, two different words. Um, and it captures kind of the internal uh, state that many fours are experiencing. Yeah, in, in that first part, there's also a conversation between Charlotte and uh, John, her husband. And I think he said to her, let them be who they are. Uh, so, so let them express yeah. their uniqueness or whatever they no, are. The band and, that he is photo yes. uh, photographing. Yeah. yeah. So again, that that idea of authenticity yeah. that's so central to fours, and so, and what was interesting about that scene is that she was barely paying attention to what he was saying. Right. She's playing with a scarf that she has on and, you know, her, you know, and she's like kind of just agreeing with him. But, you know, again, she's caught up in her own stuff and not really, you know, all that interested in what he has to say, it seems. Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. 
At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It is currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. <laughs> the final thing, uh, I, I guess, in this section of the movie is the lip my stocking scene uh, that, that, that happens. <laughs> Tamara, why don't you tell us about the lip my stocking? Uh, <laughs> yeah, this is the the escort lady that has been sent, uh, I guess, by the producer of the uh, or the or the owner of the whiskey company. Yeah, they don't quite say. Yeah, but they, so they it's, say it's someone like, related to the, advert, uh, the advertising he's shooting. Yeah. So he's sending him like a kind of compliment and escort lady, <laughs> and she's talking in English and yeah. saying "lip my stocking" while she's she means "rip my stocking." Yeah. <laughs> and a bizarre thing happens that she started to do movement, and he got even bored by what she's doing. <laughs> Rather than being entertained, which is the the objective of the whole thing, so yes, it was, it, and they chose it chose uh, uh, that element of uh, four that not really interesting in the ordinary. So, so the guy is sending him something very ordinary. I don't know, Tamara, if that's ordinary for you, if that event is ordinary for yeah. you, I, you know, I want to hang out with you I, some more. But, uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, the thing is that although it looks funny for us, I mean, it it, it was expressed by by the director here. It's like he's feeling bored even with that. So, yes, you know. yes, yes. Bored, disoriented. He's trying to get away from yes, her. Yeah. She's writhing on the floor. She tackles him, yeah. and you know, yeah. uh, that, that all the lamps get knocked out, and uh, the scene sort of fades yeah. away. Maria Jose, anything you would add to that? Uh, yeah, and not to that scene, actually, but um, I think there was this scene where he was, the first scene when he was shooting the uh, the commercial, and the guy, the director, speaks in Japanese, like, for two minutes, and then the translator, <laughs> <laughs> inter- the interpreter, yes. <laughs> says, like, three words. And, yes. and the guy just cannot understand what's going on and i guess that's i mean one of the reasons why it's called lost in translation but he he again seems so out of place out of place and it felt to me like he's selling his soul for these two millions like doing things that are just denigrating yes and um so the whole thing uh trying to follow Kind of go with the flow with the director and all of that it feels painful. So there, there, there's two of those scenes, right? One is the video uh, that they're doing mm. where he turns to the camera and says something. And then later there's one where it's still pictures that they're taking. And so it was interesting. I don't know if you, if you quite caught this, but again, these were ad-libbed scenes. Okay. Sophia Coppola, the director, was standing, you know, in the back giving directions to the guy playing the photographer to give to Bill Murray. And so at first he tells him, to, you know, to be uh, Lodger Moore. Lodger Moore. Yeah. Lodger Moore. Yeah. So, you know, James Bond 007. Now, what's great about that 
is that Roger Moore is like the grossest of the James Bonds, right? I mean, for any James Bond purist, you've got to either be a Sean Connery guy or, you know, again, I got no time. Are you going to tell me that Roger Moore was the best James Bond? Again, you know, we're not hanging out together, right? So, So that she threw Roger Moore at him was just perfect, right? Because again, it was like, ooh, how gross. And even when she mentioned the Rat Pack, even though they the were saying Sinatra, <laughs> the Lat Pack, yeah. even though um, they, they were talking about Sinatra, the instructions she was giving were more Dean Martin, okay? which again, the second tier of the Rat Pack as far as anybody's concerned. So again, just this idea of authenticity kind of sneaks in in that way as well. And, and even the director of the film or the commercial was a bit fourish, had kind of dyed hair and was wearing different clothes. It was just, you could see his frustration because his vision was not understood. Great. Okay, so um, scene two. Okay, so we've covered the first 20, 25 minutes. You know, just a quick point. I don't know if we said this yet, but Bob and Charlotte do not exchange words until 32 minutes into the movie. Right, which is quite interesting, right? Because the movie is about their relationship and they don't talk for the first quarter of the, of the film. But the second, I guess, scene we want to talk about, and again, it covers a few scenes, is uh, the meeting with Kelly, the actress based on the Cameron Diaz character, or on Cameron Diaz. I don't know, why don't you get one of you guys set this up for us here, what happens when they first meet in the lobby. They are going down, uh, Scotty Johansson and her uh, husband, and it's, it's like they meet this uh, actor, uh, actress, and she's like, uh, you know, all over the place. It's like transmitting all over the place. and Probably a transmitting set yeah, would be my Yes, guess. absolutely. Uh-huh. And it's like uh, a conversation between uh, both uh, Scarlett Johansson's husband and the actress. And I, I feel that uh, Scarlett Johansson is doing all the acting here. With her facial expression, her the way she looks, it's like uh, it's like judging, comparing, uh, you know, building a kind of opinion about this person, the relationship between them, and so on, and not saying anything completely, not saying anything. They keep on talking about very shallow things. I liked, uh, I like the way that you're uh, photographing. You are my best photographer i'm here i under, have the worst bo yeah, yeah. you know i, I smell to awful yeah, right exactly now. and uh, i'm i'm here under uh, cover i mean i don't have my real name and uh, the the name i'm using so and so and the only comment that she uh, scarlett johansson says after she uh, the actress leave that the name she, uh, that she used is the name of a man which is like yes. a continuing of uh, judging her and <laughs> commenting and and like yes. building this scene. Yeah, yes. you, you can see disgust in her face. Not not only the face, even her uh, movement when he puts his arm around her uh, shoulder and she just put it down. It's like a kind of disgust. So, I mean, I, take your hand yeah. off me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you're paying attention to her, you're disgusting as well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And again, it's clearly this this actress kelly is a profoundly superficial person right i mean just incredibly superficial and you can as you said Tamara, just see the contempt all over her face uh this or all over charlotte's face and yes so the uh kelly character is using the pseudonym 
uh, Evelyn Wall, or no, she pronounces Evelyn Wall, which is a man whose name is Evelyn Wall was pronounced, you know, so there was this mockery going on there. Now, they encounter each other a couple of more times because a little bit later, Kelly is giving a press conference and Charlotte is kind of walking around outside of the press conference just listening. And again, it's this mind-numbingly stupid things that she's saying and self-referencing because they're asking her about Keanu Reeves and she she says yeah well we have the same dog we live close by and it's all about her she cannot say anything about him yes yes and uh finally or I guess the final encounter that comes to my mind between the two of them is a little bit later when they're all in the bar in the evening so uh charlotte john and kelly and a rapper of of some sort uh are having a conversation and kelly will not let any of the conversation not have to do with her right so uh there's just you know keep steering it back to her and as soon as anybody's not listening she bursts in and talks about oh you have to try this cleanse right uh, you know with that kind of stuff so um this is where scarlett johansson starts to turn to bob as a diversion right she sends over a little cup of peanuts uh, go ahead Tamara. yeah i see i see the character of kelly is is written in a way that describes how how four are looking at uh, other people if they are not deep enough i think this is the way that sofia coppola is expressing the the lens of four when they look at people that they are not deep enough yeah no i agree it's like yeah. mundane or shallow or just not interesting uninteresting it's yeah and i i want to add to it too that you know and uh, i'll tell you what we'll put a pin on this and come back to it when we talk about the subtypes okay and the three instinctual biases because i think there's a very clear subtype theme here that's worth talking about not just in the navigating but the way transmitting and preserving are portrayed in the movie is through a very transmitting lens, but we'll we'll come back to that. So, is Sofia uh, well, Coppola a navigating force? She certainly strikes me as one. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure, but mm-hmm. she certainly strikes me as one. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the next scene. Uh, oh, I, I just have to mention the part where uh, the Kelly character says that her father was anorexic. Right? Uh, yeah. she was, you know, everybody accused her of being anorexic, but she wasn't. But her father was, and, uh, and Cameron Diaz's father really was a prisoner during the Bay of Pigs invasion in the early 60s. Uh, so that's lifted directly from her. It's really a, a direct attack at Cameron Diaz um, in the movie. Okay, so next part. So Bob and Charlotte become friends, and Charlotte invites him to go out on the town with some local friends of hers. And Yeah, and before that, where they're, when they're at the bar the first time, uh, uh, they talk about his life crisis and getting a Porsche, and uh, she tells him that she studied f- philosophy and that she just doesn't know what to do with her life. She doesn't yes. know. Uh, she's not sure about what yes. she's going to do next. So you can yes. see that they're both looking for something. Yes. Um, yes, he's there hiding from his wife, uh, you know, disappointing his kids, making $2 million when he could be doing a play. She is uh, trying to find herself 25, and, you know, all, the, all this sort of stuff. So, yes, absolutely. And the thing I like about this is how completely unimpressed she was that 
he's a movie star, right? That, you know, that he's a famous guy. And she's just like, yeah, whatever. She's just kind of, you know, making fun of him as just some other guy having a midlife crisis, which is. Uh, yeah. And the other thing that they said was, should we leave the bar and then leave the hotel, leave the city, leave the country? And it's these sense of the four that they just don't belong to where they are. Yes. And they were happy to leave everything behind because it just wasn't their place. I think also something is happening here is like the sense of connection that we are at the same level. We are at the same depth. I mean, we don't feel that we belong here, but we feel, I mean, belong to the context. But we, we feel that somewhere we are in sync, somewhere we are reaching certain depths. So, so there is kind of, uh, uh, of connection happening here. Yeah, it's 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 interesting as a, as a, you know I'm just sitting here thinking how it's 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 almost as if we don't want to leave any scenes out because every scene is just so descriptive of the four. Uh, one of the ones that just flashed to my mind was this throwaway scene of him golfing, right? So you, you know there's a day where they're both kind of off doing their own things and he's golfing, but it's not just him at a golf course. He's in the middle of this beautiful scene with, you know, in front of, you know, he's um, a silhouetted in front of Mount Fuji. You know, it's just staggeringly beautiful. Uh, and, you know, but again, it's just a an insignificant scene to the plot of the movie. And there's so many of these little things. No so, relevance yeah. whatsoever. Exactly. <laughs> you could have taken all of it out and the plot would have still been the same. Yeah. Right. Uh, so again, this this movie really is a meditation, the beauty and uh, you know the, the the impermanence and all of these things. Okay, so yeah. okay, so they uh, they get together. He's wearing this really bright uh, orange camouflage shirt. Gets a little embarrassed, turns it inside out. They have a little bonding moment. Uh, they go out and meet her friend Charlie Brown, who is named. Yeah, and they shared that they both have that CD, uh, a soul oh, right, search. Right. Yes, he listened to it as well. And um, and so they go out on the town. And at first, he's clearly feeling uncomfortable, right? He's much older than uh, all these people were. They're all, you know, speaking Japanese, uh, you know, and when they speak English, it's very heavily accented. Uh, you can see him gradually becoming more and more comfortable as he gets to know people. And uh, then there's that scene where he's sitting there talking to the guy who's speaking to him in French, right? The Japanese guy speaking to him in French. And again, it just adds this other layer of disconnection, you know, because it, there, was any, there wasn't any indication that he understood French, but uh, they're talking and he seems quite happy by this point. I think that they were both, they felt both, they both felt kind of comfortable, even if they were out of place, mm -hmm. because I guess fours navigate the world feeling a bit out of place anyway. And it was as if they were there with this other group of misfits, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, one of them was, you know, talking, you know, was a surfer and, uh, you know, a photographer and this and that. And, you know, so it was this kind of band of outsiders almost that uh, they felt very comfortable with. Uh, then this kind of weird fight breaks out with Charlie Brown and the bartender and they start shooting at them with an air rifle and they have to run and flee and go through all these arcades. And, you know, there's just this uh, chaos that happens and they end up at a karaoke bar, which I thought, thought was an interesting scene. You guys first, before I, I share my thoughts, tell me about your reaction to the karaoke. Again, they were happy to be doing those things, although a bit uncomfortable. The songs played there, 
had a message as well. There was one where that it said, I was afraid to be a simple guy. It's kind of the worst nightmare of a four. And then I'm special, you know, so I'm, I'm not going to sing it, but that, that's what it said. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. I think it, it was showing the overwhelming, you know, uh, disorientation of this, you know, the karaoke uh, culture with the, with the state that both of them, they are feeling lost. It's like, you know, a crescendo of... Uh, of bringing this really highlighted and being seen, the the the, the sense of loss. So the music, uh, Mario Jose alluded to some of it already, uh, but again, very fourish movie. Charlie Brown is singing uh, the Sex Pistols, uh, "God Save the Queen." Uh, Sex Pistols, a very angry, probably transmitting fourish uh, sort of band, and uh, then Bob starts singing the Nick Cave song made famous by Elvis Costello. What's so funny about peace, love and understanding. And again, the lyrics are indicative as I walk through this twisted world, searching for the light, searching for light in the darkness of insanity. I ask myself is all hope lost. Is there only pain and hatred and misery? Right. But each time I start to feel like this, I, uh, there's one thing I want to know. What's so funny about peace, love, and understanding? Again, it's that trip to equanimity that we see in the four, right? This suffering and pain. Uh, and when I ask myself, is that all there is to it? I go and find these other qualities, which, again, a nice message for the four. The song that she sings is uh, The Pretender's Brass and Pocket. And yes, Maria Jose, you, you caught the part about uh, I'm special, right? I'm going to make you notice. I'm going to use my arms, going to use my legs, going to use my style, going to use my sidestep, going to use my fingers, going to use my imagination, because I'm going to make you see there's nobody else here, no one like me. And I'm special. Again, Chrissy Hind, very much a four, uh, lead singer of the Pretenders. And uh, and then finally, the last song that they do is Roxy Music's More Than This, uh, which, you know, Brian Furry, the lead singer and the kind of the soul of Roxy Music, very much a four, uh, very much the uh, uh, four sort of uh, mindset. And and it's after this song, or while this he's doing this song, that they have their first kind of look at each other that really, said, I think, tells you the complexity of their relationship. Do you guys remember anything about the way they looked at each other during that scene? Well, they were singing, or... Well, he was singing more than this. Yeah. Intense. <laughs> it, it was intense, absolutely right. It was, you know, you could tell there was this connection. And this is, again, one of the, you know, the uh, things about the movie, right? What exactly is this relationship here? Right. Uh, they're both married. There's, you know, there's never any kind of infidelity in the film, I guess, uh, at least not technically. But, you know, are these people friends or, you know, are they in love with each other? What's going on here? After um, the karaoke, they find each other in a small room, which I don't know what that is, but she was there smoking, I think. And yeah. he sits by her side. They share the cigarette and he, she puts, her head on his shoulder mm -hmm. and that's it. Yes. It's, it's just, how can not, just nothing else happen, you know? And uh, it doesn't, yeah. <laughs> it's just like that. Yes. So it's maybe more powerful than if something else had happened and if right. they had kissed or something, it's just there, that tension, I think it's um, quite yes. vivid and 
yeah, strong. Good. Tamar, anything to add on that part? Well, I, I mean, uh, the look is like multi-messages. I mean, it's like maybe even contradicting messages at the same time. So the look, they looked yeah. at each other's. Yeah. And this is this is like expressing the complexity of the of the four and uh, the thoughts and the feelings and everything. So they're in a taxi uh, heading back to the hotel, and the song playing again. Um, I, I, I was watching the movie the, the last time with the subtitles on, so I could see the lyrics of uh, this song, and and. You know, first she's looking at him while he's sleeping. The The lyrics of the song are, close my eyes, feel me now. I don't know how you could not love me now. Uh, you will know with her feet down on the ground over there, and I want you love to know you can't hide from the way I feel. Right? So, it's, yeah, even though they're not saying anything to each other, the music is, is saying a lot, right? Okay. So they get back to the hotel. He carries her to bed or carries her to her room, tucks her into the bed, and leaves. And calls um, his wife. And calls his wife, yes. Which, which doesn't go well, right? Uh, <laughs> so, so, Maria, Jose, tell us about the phone call home. Well, he's there, I think, overwhelmed by everything that he's going through. Her, I mean, Charlotte, and the city. And he's kind of excited, wanting to share that with his wife. And she says, well, I'm glad you're having fun. <laughs> Clearly <laughs> resentful. And, yeah. and he says, it's not fun. It's just different. But doesn't succeed at getting the message across. Right. And um, he hunts up and kind of regretting having done that well he said that was a bad idea yes <laughs> when he hangs up the phone and you know up until this point the, the relationship between them had been he would get these odd faxes you know that were always kind of little jabs at him for you know being inadequate as, as a father and husband she sent him a bunch of carpet samples and asked if he liked the burgundy one and they all look to be burgundy to me i don't you know and so uh um so yes so it was a very awkward call home next scene is the la dolce vita so, so what was the hospital scene before <laughs> Yes, yeah, you mean <laughs> you mean what was the purpose of that? Or, no, no, no. Uh, when was it? Did we go through? I mean, earlier in the movie or later in the movie? Yeah, I no, think later. The, later, I, later. I think the hospital after scene the was scene. later. Yes. Okay. All right. So it's after the it's after the scene where they are in his room mm -hmm. watching uh, La Dolce Vita, The Sweet Life, on uh, on television, and they have this conversation where she is, you know, talking about not being able to find herself. Uh, you know, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. I tried to be a writer, but I hated everything I wrote. I tried to be a photographer, but it was all stupid. Uh, I'm a mean person, you know, all, all that sort of things, right? So she's trying to figure herself out. Um, he says, ah, don't worry, you'll figure it out. And then he, she asks him about being married. Yeah, before that, when she says that she's mean at everything, he says, Mean is okay, but I don't think he believes it himself. <laughs> but that, that shows that equanimity again. I think that yes. trying to kind of make room for all of that in a really, really gentle way, but not sure that he's applying that to himself. 
He's yes. almost talking to himself there. Tamara, anything you were going to say on that? Well, well, I guess uh, this scene, this whole scene of watching the movie and then the discussion after that is like giving the message uh, of, uh, I mean, each one of them uh, finding their own identity in with regards to what's happening around them. I mean, looking at their life from a different perspective, comparing notes, kind of comparing notes. Uh, yeah. She is at the beginning of uh, life and he's somehow in the middle. And uh, it's like trying to find out uh, whether there is something that I can learn from your experience or not. And he's expressing it. So it's, it's the whole conversation is digging into who am I? Uh, how am I relating uh, to other systems in my life, uh, my identity, what do I do, and so on. And it's, I think it's a very interesting uh, conversation. She asks him about marriage, too, if marriage gets easier, because she's been married for two years, he's been married for 25 years, and his first reaction was, is no. It doesn't get any easier. And then he says, yeah, it does get easier. And, you know, and he kind of jokes that you sleep a third of your life. So that knocks, you know, seven years off the 25 uh, right away. But he, he makes, uh, again, an interesting comment that, uh, that demonstrates equanimity. The more you know who you are and what you want, the less you let things upset you. Right? Uh, which, again, is, you know, the fundamental message for the four. Right. Once, you know, the more you become comfortable with who you are, the, the more you know who you are, and you stop searching for this manufactured uniqueness that Tamar mentioned earlier, the more peace you have inside. Uh, just again, one quick note uh, on that scene. When the scene ends, they kind of fall asleep together on the bed. He's laying kind of straight. And she's curled up, and they form a four on the bed. Uh, you know, if you look at it. Go ahead, Maria Jose, you're making a face there. What were you going to say? Just seeing a pattern that might not mean anything. You know, patternicity. Yeah, of course it doesn't mean anything. I, I'm not suggesting it was a secret message from Sofia Coppola that this is a movie about fours, but I just found it interesting and uh, that they, they are in the shape of a four there. And I think one of our students pointed that out uh, uh, during one of the trainings one time. Okay. So th there's one more call between Bob and Lydia that I think is worth talking about here, where um, he's in the, the tub uh, taking a hot bath, and the phone rings, and she picks it up and says that the burgundy carpet is out of stock, and uh, so which one do you want? And he says, you know, whatever you want, Lydia, I'm completely lost. Right. And she says, it's only carpet, Bob. <laughs> right? You know, But he says, no, it's not that, you know, and he's just feeling this sense of, you know, being again, completely lost, not knowing who he is. And, and this is where he starts talking about how I want to start eating better. I don't want all that pasta. I want to take care of myself. I want to start eating, uh, you know, like the Japanese do. Right. And uh, do you remember what she says to him when he says that? Well, stay there. <laughs> <laughs> stay there. Right? Why don't you stay there? You could have it every day. Right. <laughs> so, uh, again, uh, trouble, trouble on the home front. Right. And, you know, and then again, he just says, you know, OK, that's not what I want. She gets you know, that's not what I mean. She gets distracted by, I think, the kids or something on the other end and ends up hanging up. And at which point he just sinks himself under the water uh, to, to show again his his exact aspiration. Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. 
We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It's currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. Okay, so after the bathtub scene, Bob is really depressed. He, after the bathtub, he goes down to the bar. And uh, what happens when he goes to the bar? He runs into the singer. Yes. And they start, yes. she starts flirting. I mean, you can't, there's almost nothing happens until you see them in bed the next day. And so, yes, yeah, so there's a, uh, a lounge, lounge singer. Uh, they don't even give her name in the credits, but she's the lead singer of a band called Sausalito. Bob and her uh, sleep together. He wakes up in the morning with her singing uh, Midnight at the Oasis uh, in his room, and he's just horrified. Uh, he's got this horrified look on his face. And, of course, Charlotte comes knocking at the door. At which point, you know, there's uh, a bit of stress between Bob and Charlotte because she's obviously disappointed. And do you remember what she says to him when she figures out who's in the room with him? She, she said, well, at least she's your own age. Yeah, she was so you got, off. <laughs> <laughs> you, can, you can talk about what it was like to grow up in the 50s, to which he responds, wasn't there anybody around to give you enough love when you were young? Right. So they're shockingly harsh with each other uh, during this point. Right. No, actually, he says that at the uh, at over the, the lunch. I'm sorry. They have that exchange over lunch where they're they're you know barely talking to yes, each other. Exactly. Yeah. OK. So I was I was mixing up there. So they kind of, uh, you know, end up on bad terms. And then there's a fire drill in the middle of the night. They see each other and uh, they go and connect while they're standing outside and uh, sort of reunite. They kind of make up, okay? And they're, go ahead, Maria. They make up, but you don't know exactly in what terms or what what is it that is going on still. Well, uh, yeah, you still don't know what's going on, uh, but yeah, this, but they're riding up after the fire drill in the elevator together, just the two of them. And uh, when they get to his floor, there's this awkward moment where they, you know, they go to say goodnight and they have this really awkward, you know, peck, kiss goodnight. And the elevator door closes while he's still in there. And so he has to ride up <laughs> with her to, to extend the awkwardness a few floors until she gets off. Um, and where they share a more comfortable mm. kiss before she gets off the elevator and he goes back to his room. Yeah. Uh, so that's the night before he leaves um, in the morning. He is trying to get hold of her because she hold has of her. his jacket. Not because of that. I mean, that's the excuse, of course. <laughs> I don't think he cares uh, yeah. about his jacket, but he wants to see her, her for one last time. Yes. And she gets a fax. Do you remember what was on the fax that she received? Yeah, I love you, something like that. 
Yes, from her husband. A heart and yes, yes. Yes. It was it was a it was a love note from John who was still off on the on the photo shoot. So uh he's in the lobby saying goodbye to people, says goodbye to her for a few minutes. This woman, this tall blonde woman hits on him and he kind of ignores her uh, in exchange for, you know, trying to find Charlotte. He gets into the limo, she goes out walking, and uh what happens? That's the end of the movie. Oh, he's on the in the car on the way to the airport. He sees her, stops the car, gets mm-hmm. off, and goes to find her. Yes, very famous ending scene where he walks to her, and you know they kind of look at each other. She's crying. He pulls her close. He whispers something in her ear that you yeah, can't. First, he hear. says that he's going to miss her. I think. Yes, yes, good. Yeah, good. And uh, then he pulls her clothes, whispers something in her ear, and they pull apart from each other and say, okay, and then smile and happier music starts to play. And he goes back to the limo and rides to the airport. Right? So um, people always want to know what he said to her in that scene. Uh, he's never revealed it, what he said to her. She has not either. Okay. So uh, that's the end of the movie. Okay. Again, not a classic you know, Hollywood feel good. You know, if this was a Julia Roberts movie, they would have found a way to live happily ever after or something like that. Right. But, uh, uh and have a this, second part. Yeah. Part two. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, translation three. Yeah. The, the, back, <laughs> the background is of this movie is full of people. I mean, lots of people like moving around and so on. And it's, it's giving again, the sense of loss. I mean, I mean, you were lost in middle of people, lots of people. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that, that's, that's a great point, Tamara. It captures this idea of feeling completely alone in a sea of people. Right? You know, Tokyo, from what I understand, I, I believe, is the largest city in the world, 35 million people. Right. Uh, which is, you know, twice the size of Cairo, which is a crazy big city, you know, more than twice the size of New York. So it's, it's a huge city. And again, there's this feeling of isolation that is there. So one final thing I wanted to talk about was the subtypes, okay, and the instinctual biases. So I think we're probably in agreement here that both of these characters were navigating force, correct? Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, absolutely. There's all these kind of looking at the environment, at the landscape, and understanding, figuring it out, but then not joining unless, I mean, only, they only joined that group of weird people, Charlie Brown and, and that crowd, I, that they felt comfortable with, I think. Yes, the other the other group of misfits, right, yeah. uh, you know, which is where the navigating fours often feel most comfortable, right, with people who are, you know, a little uh, on the fringes as well. As we said, uh, and, and for those of you who have not listened to the um, Breakfast Club episode, navigating is what other people will call the social subtype. So there were a few transmitters in this movie. Uh, I identified, let's see, uh, you know, Kelly significant for sure. Yeah. Kelly for sure. Yeah. Uh, the Johnny John. Carson, the Johnny Carson of yeah, who we haven't talked about oddly <laughs> enough, the Johnny Carson of of Japan. Uh, Maria Jose, do you know who Johnny Carson was? Do you, no, do you know no, but you know, we had a um, TV show here that it was kind of all jokes, and there uh-huh. was this presenter that was just like him, just like the okay. Japanese guy. It was just so, <laughs> so, so funny. It was painful for me to watch. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, it's like, how can someone embarrass himself in, in that way? 
know, yes. and feel yeah. comfortable with it. <laughs> yes, a, a quite over-the-top transmitter in that character. So for those of you who don't know, Johnny Carson was the host of The Tonight Show for 30-plus years in the United States. I think he, uh, he quit in the uh, early to mid-1990s, but very, very famous TV personality in the United States back in from the 60s until the early 90s. And this guy was the, uh, I guess, the closest to uh, uh, Rioze that uh, I think of would be the, was the guy that does Sabado Gigante? It's uh, Don Francisco. Uh, yeah, there you go. Okay, so, um, all right. So, <laughs> Don, so Franci Don Francisco. Don Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> the transmitters in the movie do not come off that well. Right. I mean, they're not portrayed in a positive light. Even the singer from Sausalito, right, is uh, not portrayed very well. So you've got John Kelly, the singer, and the uh, Johnny Carson of Japan, which, again, is not a surprise given that it was such a navigating movie. No, that I also saw. I mean, we, we've discussed how kind of charged it was all the time, but it was like the transmitting repressed in the movie. Mm -hmm. It wanted to come out, but it was constantly repressed transmitters would let it go but the main characters uh, just didn't yeah so we talk about the transmitting domain as the zone of inner conflict yeah for navigators and that's what mariose was talking about is this internal conflict about some of the elements of the transmitting domain so tell me about preserving in the movie did you capture any preserving at all no they didn't eat <laughs> right. yeah. They didn't uh, sleep. <laughs> right. The rooms uh -huh. were a mess. Didn't care about the home, kind of. Yeah. Yeah, not much. Yeah, so there was this complete indifference to the preserving domain, yeah. except for the one scene where he started talking about how he wanted to take care of himself and, you know, not eat pasta and eat Japanese food kind of, kind of stuff, right? And again, that is something that I could certainly relate to as a navigator, that every so often you start to say, you know what, I, I really need to make some changes and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this. But, and it stops at that. But you know, it stops right there. Exactly right. So, <laughs> so, uh, so again, I thought the movie even captured the pattern of expression related to transmitting extremely well. Yeah. What else do we want to say about the movie before we, uh, before we wrap up here? Anything? No, I just think that uh, and we've said it, but this is not about exactly what happens. It's how it feels what happens. And then it's four-ish. Yeah, that's an interesting point, because the movie was all about feeling, right? It was, uh, there's not a lot of exposition. Uh, there's not a plot to speak of. It was all just pure experience. Yeah. And, um, there's one review here. I don't know if you've read it before, but it says, I can never remember the plot, yeah. but who cares? <laughs> the emotional through line is crystal clear. Yes, 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 absolutely right. The, the reviews do capture that feeling. There's another one here that says, very much a mood piece. The film's deft, deft balance of humor and poignancy makes both a pleasurable and melancholy experience. So again, you know, for me, we talked about this too, and we talked about the two and almost famous. Uh, it, gave me, it gave me an appreciation for fours that sometimes I can forget to have, right? I mean, uh, this is one of the values of doing this endeavor here, of looking at the Enneagram types through movies, is we start to see, oddly enough, the humanity 
uh, embedded in each of these personality styles. And uh, and this is why we wanted to to talk about these movies through film because art captures uh, those things that we don't always see in real life, but we know are there. You know, for me, this really spoke uh, as well as any movie I can think of uh, to what's at the heart going on at point four the Enneagram. Yeah, and 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 I'll say as well, this specific movie is giving us the opportunity to look at the world from the eyes of a four, the director. So it's yeah. like, how does a four see the world? It's not only seeing the four from the outside, but also seeing the world from this perspective of a four. And I think it's a very yeah. interesting uh, thing. Well, thanks, guys. This was fun. We'll look forward to the next movie next time. I'm not going to give away what it is. Again, we might have a special surprise in store for the next movie, so we'll hold on to that. Uh, this has been the Enneagram in a Movie podcast uh, with Mario Sakura, Maria Jose Munita, and Tamar Zanatti. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, part of the Awareness to Action podcast network. Find out more about the Enneagram and our offerings at awarenesstoaction.com. And if you enjoyed the episode, please go online and give us a review. We'll see you next time.